Good afternoon. My name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air, as ever, at four o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon in London. And um, the show's repeated at half past eight on Saturday mornings. And then also old um, past episodes of, of this show can now be podcasted, if you're a pod kind of person. Um, go to the Resonance website and look under podcasts and you'll find all the details you need. Some brand new stuff this week, after I've been rather idle of late, but I've recently um, started started back on course. And um, so this piece I'm about to read, the first piece I'm about to read this week, was written this morning um, at about 10 o'clock. You might want pen and paper because there'll be questions afterwards. This is called A Series of Unfortunate Cows. Misfortune can strike a cow out of the blue. To give but one example, the field in which it is standing may become flooded after heavy rainfall, or, if not flooded exactly, then pitted with many, many puddles. No cow likes to stand in water, so such a circumstance must be counted a misfortune. The cow in the puddle, however, is une jolie vache, compared to the cow which inattentively wanders onto some railway tracks and then comes to a halt. Continuing across the tracks would be the wiser wiser option, for as long as the cow remains where it is, it is an imperiled cow. But unlike owls, cows are not noted for wisdom. The imperiled cow on the railway tracks may suffer the misfortune of being killed by a runaway locomotive without a cow-conscious driver at the helm. I'm not sure helm is the correct word for the little cabin in which a train driver, cow-conscious or otherwise, sits or stands, but let that pass. What we can say with certainty is that a motionless cow in the path of a runaway train will suffer the greatest of misfortunes, that is, a violent death. By comparison, the previous cow, the one standing in the puddle, is almost as happy a cow as the laughing cow that mysteriously appears on the wrappers of a brand of processed cheese triangles in this country, and perhaps in other countries too. If my memory serves, that laughing cow is red and white, If a real cow was red and white, it too would probably suffer misfortune, for its coloration would make it an easy target for predators. Larger, more savage beasts, ones with vision alert to bright primary colours, in this case red, would be far more likely to attack the laughing cow than a neighbouring cow that was, say, beige or dun or even dappled. That being the case, one wonders why the red and white cow is laughing. The fourth in our series of unfortunate cows is the one that is stricken by disease. In the popular mind, the most notable cow disease is bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or mad cow disease. I, for one, can never read the technical phrase without visualising a cow with a brain that has turned to sponge. That may be because I'm mispronouncing the word spongiform. Either way, I think we can agree that this is the least fortunate cow we've encountered so far.
Next week, we'll be taking a stroll down a pathway that leads to four more cows assailed by misfortune. Until then, your homework is as follows. Answer the following questions to the best of your ability and with a certain dash. 1. If through some eldritch soul transfer conjured by a warlock you swapped places with one of the four unfortunate cows mentioned, which one would it be and why? 2. Would you follow the example of the red and white cow and laugh in the face of misfortune, or would you take steps to avert it? If so, how? Question 3. What tips would you give to a cow standing in a puddle? And finally, the fourth and last question. Imagine you're a train driver. Would you be cow conscious? If so, list six examples of your cow consciousness. The Nord and the Chewed Dobson was hopeless at identifying bones which had been gnawed by wild animals, but that did not stop him trying. Sometimes, if he tired of leaning on a fence watching pigs in a sty, he would go and get his big spade and dig up bones. He had a few favourite locations, such as the perimeter fence of the zoo and the aerodrome, and he always came home with a sackful. Look, he would shout, brandishing one of his finds at Marigold Chew. If I'm not mistaken, this is the leg bone of a weasel which has been gnawed by a pony. Or, look, he might say, I'll wager this is the tibia of an arctic hare that has been gnawed by a squirrel. He was invariably wrong. Dobson mounted his bones on rectangular pieces of hardboard, which he then hung on the walls of what passed as his study. He added a carefully written label to each one, on which he inscribed the date and location on which he exhumed it, the animal he supposed it came from, and the animal whose teeth marks he purported to see as evidence of gnawing. Often these striations were not teeth marks at all, but Dobson was adamant. One wet February Friday, Dobson and Marigold Chew received a visit from Vlasto Pismire, a man who bore an uncanny resemblance to the meteorite-obsessed Liberal Democrat MP Lembit Opik. Pismire supplied cocoa to circuses. Having heard erroneously that Marigold Chew was a past queen bee of the flying trapeze, he was hoping to sell her cocoa for old times' sake. Quickly apprised of his mistake, Pismire was about to leave when Dobson, 
in an uncharacteristic fit of generosity, invited him to stay for dinner. He stayed not only for dinner, but for the next four months, during which time he barely stopped talking. It is said of the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge that he could talk for hours, fluently, entrancingly, with barely a pause, but without his interlocutors having the faintest idea what on earth he was going on about. Pissmeyer was a man of the same kidney, and Dobson found him fascinating. On that first evening, as they sat round the table eating paps and slops, Pissmeyer, having been shown Dobson's collection of labelled bones, said, I find it interesting that your surname, Marigold, is Chu, while in that other room there are all those bones which have been gnawed. Are you sure that your name is not Marigold Gnaw and that the bones have been chewed? But of course not. I jest. If my memory serves, the OED defines chew as to crush, bruise and grind to pulp by the continued action of the molar teeth with help of the tongue, cheeks and saliva, and gnaw as to bite something persistently so as to injure it or remove portions of it, to wear away by a continued biting or nibbling. So whereas one may idly think of chewing and gnawing as similar activities, they are in fact radically different. Equally worthy of note is the fact that in this house of chew and the Nord, the dinner you have both so kindly provided requires neither chewing nor gnawing, being a bland thin sludge one can gulp down bowl after bowl without involving one's teeth one whit. It's the kind of dinner I approve of, for I like to rest my teeth as others rest their weary limbs, the better to preserve them. Speaking of which, if I were you, Dobson, I would start collecting animals' teeth as well as bones, so you could match up the gnaw with the nord. Dobson never followed this advice, but it did inspire the coda to one of his finest out-of-print pamphlets, which he began writing on the wet June day later that year when the Coco Man finally left the house. The circumstances of his departure were curious. Marigold Chu had embarked upon a mural painting of eels using one of the walls of the dining room. Because he seemed to need no sleep, Pissmeyer had barely moved from the dinner table throughout his stay, comfortable in his chair and prattling away, irrespective of an audience. It had occurred to both Dobson and Marigold Chew that perhaps he existed in a separate time continuum and that he thought they were still having the same meal as when he had arrived in February. The fact that he never removed the napkin tucked into his shirt front supported this view. What I find puzzling, said Marigold Chew to Dobson on the morning of that June day as they trudged along the old canal towpath, is that when he sat down, the walls were bare. Now they're teeming with eels, yet he appears not to notice. Perhaps he is a blind Coco man, suggested Dobson. Don't be ridiculous, Dobson, snorted Marigold Chew. As they approached the house on their return, they were astonished to find the Lembit Opic look-alike hurrying out of the front door. I can no longer remain in a house full of painted eels, he shouted, looking stricken, for I have long feared eel depictions of all kinds. 
If ever you invite me to dinner again, I will tell you why. He carried on talking, but as he scurried away, his words were lost on the wild winds. Within the hour, Dobson had written the first six pages of his pamphlet, Chew, Gnaw, Eel, Teeth, Pap and Slops for Dinner, a memoir of Vlasto Pissmeyer, the only known copy of which is rumoured to be in the possession of the Liberal Democrat MP for Montgomeryshire. He keeps it under lock and key, and will deny its existence if questioned. This Friday, the this Friday, the twenty seventh of January, is the first anniversary um, of a great dream I had, and uh, I, it's very rare that you want to share your dreams with other people because they tend to, what seem, what seems so exciting when you wake up in the morning soon becomes apparently completely boring. Um, but this was such a great dream, I'd like to repeat it. So after a little burst of more music, I will reread the dream I had on the 27th of January last year. The Glove of Ib I was in an unknown seaside resort with a companion whose identity was hazy. We were walking and passed a couple of men of Mediterranean appearance, gaunt and dressed in very plain, neat brown coats and hats. They had a film noir air. If they hadn't been so thin, Peter Laurie would have been a good choice to play one or both of them. In this dream, I turned to my companion, pointed at one of the men and said... He just said, Ib. The man at whom I pointed thrust out his hand, clad in a brown leather glove, and clutched me round the throat. He fixed me with a stare more intense than menacing, and withdrew his hand, leaving the glove in place. That is the glove of Ib, he announced. Now read this. He handed me a pamphlet on which was written, He has weak bomber. His bomber is not good. I understood that this referred to me. The words were printed in heavy black block capitals on brown paper and reminded me of a vorticist tract like Wyndham Lewis's Blast. The glove of Ib around my neck was not uncomfortable, but I wanted to be rid of it. The Peter Laurie figures had disappeared, time had passed, and I walked around the seaside resort alone now, trying to find them. Then I woke up. What can it all mean? I should point out that I didn't wake to find myself being strangled, nor had my neck become entangled in a stray dressing gown cord or length of string. 
The only thing I'm sure of is that from now on I must work hard on strengthening my bomber. And that was the dream I had, two days short of a year ago today. And you'll be pleased to hear that my bomber is now much stronger. This is a story, uh, another very recent story, called Stunned Starlings. Pockmarked, mustachioed and bonkers, evil tyrant Uncle Joe Starling stepped out onto the balcony of his dacha. He sat down in his dacha deck chair and peered in his bonkers and evil way at a flock of starlings soaring through the blue sky above him. Uncle Joe liked curlews more than he liked starlings, and he had once ordered the firing squad for a bird-hating apparatchik who served him curlew soup at a ceremonial picnic lunch one summer's afternoon. But he liked starlings well enough, and his lips curled into a smile as the birds vanished behind some trees over by the Black Lake. There were bones at the bottom of the Black Lake, Not only the bones of small animals which had inadvertently fallen into the lake and been eaten by the carnivorous fish that swam there, but the bones of the curlew soup maker, whose bullet-riddled corpse Uncle Joe had had tossed into the churning black water by his minions. The chief Dacha minion was Halob, father of Old Halob, who became famous as the irascible trainer of fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol. Halob, the minion, was a wheezy, crumpled man whose tunic was often stained with egg and beetroot, for these were his favourite foods, though he had few teeth left in his head. Halob was a perfect minion, for within his soul burned an indestructible love for Uncle Joe Starling, a love so pure that it had been celebrated in verse by national poet Igor Zugu, a verse that was proclaimed now at the marriage ceremonies of even the most feckless young peasant couples. There was a wedding taking place in a village near the Dacha later today, and Uncle Joe had decided to attend. As he watched the flock of starlings crossing the sky again, flying back from whence they came, he twisted the little red pneumatic knob on the arm of his dacha deck chair to summon his minion. Halob arrived on the balcony within seconds, creaking a little. "'Your bones creak, Halob,' observed Starling, and then he cackled, Unlike the bones of the curlew soup maker which lie rotting at the bottom of the black lake. <laughs> Halob cackled too. He always cackled when Starling cackled. They cackled together often, at least four or five times a day, whenever they recalled the numberless victims of Uncle Joe's firing squads. For they were cruel men, both of them, despite the purity of Halob's love. I have decided to perform a song at the wedding this afternoon, said Uncle Joe, 
So get me the sheet music, Halob. Nodding, nodding in acknowledgement, Halob headed back inside the dacha to do as he was bid. He did not need to ask which sheet music to fetch for his beloved, for Starling only had one song in his repertoire. The song he liked to sing was The Windmills of Your Mind, made famous by Noel Harrison, son of the actor Rex Harrison. Rex had many wives, both real and fictional, and though it would not be difficult to ascertain which of the wives was Noel's mother, I can't be bothered to find out. I can, however, tell you that, and this is a true fact, Rex and Noel were watching a storm one evening when a bolt of lightning utterly obliterated a tree directly in front of them. What sort of tree it was, and whether this act of God was related in any way to the Lord's displeasure at Rex's performance as the Pope in The Agony and the Ecstasy, are both important matters which require further investigation. The Hooting Yard Rex Harrison Research Institute is, however, understaffed at present, so unless a volunteer sidles up to the entrance flap of the Institute's somewhat bedraggled tent in the near future, we're going to have to put this on hold. Now, listen carefully. On the afternoon of that country wedding, when Uncle Joe Starling startled the feckless young peasants by striding into their reception, and then delighted them by singing The Windmills of Your Mind, his minion made a tape recording. Years later, on his deathbed, Halob entrusted the precious piece of magnetic tape to his son, Old Halob, who in turn passed it on to fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol as a gift for coming second in a particularly close-fought 500-metre sprint final. When fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol's non-fictional belongings were put up for auction in an old barn in a field somewhere near where many sinister cows were grazing, the tape fell into the hands of the Korean dance band leader Park No Lip. He gave it to his daughter, who was at the time emerging as a key figure in the Boot Boot Bahucha scene. Her beat combo, The Stunned Starlings, sampled Uncle Joe's vocals on their cover version of Rex Harrison's son's worldwide smash hit. Sadly, however, their record failed to interest anyone except their close-knit pals, annual search iTunes and other online music download resources in vain. Let that be a lesson to you. Here are three brief tales of the uncanny. Tale of the uncanny number one. I was sitting in a bower on a bright summer's day, the air heady with verbena eating my snack. All of a sudden, gruesome suppurations of foul-smelling extraterrestrial hideousness began oozing from my jam sandwich, and I swooned. When I came to, I had a tiny radio transmitter implanted in my forehead, but I remained unaware of it for the rest of my life.
tale of the uncanny number two. They called him McTavish, and he was the village wrestler. He lived in a room above the post office. No other living being ever set foot in the room until the day McTavish died. They found him lying on his bed as if he were asleep, but there was no doubt that he was dead, for hovering above his chest was a baleful phantom emitting gruesome suppurations of foul-smelling extraterrestrial hideousness which it poured into a funnel inserted into McTavish's right ear. They closed up the room and nailed the door shut, and it remained unopened for the next hundred years. Tale of the Uncanny, number three. Hand me that chaffinch, young cubbit, said Jarvis to his lantern-jawed assistant. Jarvis was a top bird scientist, and every Tuesday he devoted to the study of chaffinches. They were out wandering the hills, Jarvis and Cubbit, and the boffin had spotted a chaffinch near a babbling brook. As the knock-kneed youth clumsily picked up the chaffinch, he heard a scream behind him. Spinning round, dropping the chaffinch in the process, he saw Jarvis being engulfed by a giant fod. The poor lad scampered back to the lab and told what had happened to Mrs Purgative, the kindly old washerwoman. "'Well, I never heard of such a thing!' she exclaimed, and she hoisted her mop on her shoulder, took Cubbit by his withered hand and led him far, far away, all the way to Gondwana land. And the source of those three tales of the uncanny um, was a book entitled 620 Uncanny Tales, together with a pen portrait of Victoria Principal, by Dobson, out of print. Last week I bumped into an old acquaintance in the street and almost the first thing he said to me was Frank, tell me about Nidor. Luckily I'd just been reading Blodgett's book of animal sacrifice and was able to spout forth much wisdom on the subject and it seems only fair to repeat it to you here um, the information which allowed me to impress my old pal. This is an extract then from Blodgett's book of animal sacrifice. There's nothing better to put some zing into an overcast Thursday morning after a night of fitful sleep than to wander into the desert and sacrifice a quadruped. Goats, I feel, have been a little overdone, excuse the pun, as have rams. Why not try a bison or even a dromedary? Before you can smell the wafting nidor of charred animal flesh, however, you'll need to set up a sacrificial altar. Stone slabs are useful, but if there are none to hand, you can improvise using sticks and branches. 
Don't build your altar too high. Remember, you'll have to tether your beast to it prior to slaughter. Once the altar is satisfactorily completed, I recommend that you ritually cleanse it. There are several very effective ritual cleansing agents on the market, which shouldn't put too big a dent in your pocket. I usually use Dr Gillespie's aromatic camphor and myrrh preparation, but then I'm very fond of the packaging. Some wailing and ululation... I'm going to begin that sentence again. Some wailing and ululation while you scrub never goes amiss. Now, tie your bison, dromedary or other quadruped to the altar and sprinkle it with something. Herbs, talc, space-age glitter dust, anything you like, and slaughter it. Making very careful use of your safety matches, ignite the dead beast and do a bit more wailing. The air will soon be heavy with nidor, especially if you fan the flames with palm leaves. When the fire has utterly consumed your sacrificial animal, do tidy up after you. The ashes may be cast under the winds, or you may prefer to use a dustpan and brush to place them in an amphora. And that's all from Hooting Yard on the Air for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Remember, you can, if you go to um, the Resonance website, you can find out where you can get podcasts of previous shows. And you can read, um, read the stories and many, many more on the Hooting Yard website. Just put Hooting Yard into Google and it will take you straight there. Unless you live in China, in which case it probably won't anymore. Bye-bye. <laughs>